I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know you, know that you have sent me. You know, good morning, church. It's good to see everyone this morning. You know, we are talking about and looking at biblical community for a couple, three weeks. And, you know, for many of us, the words biblical community, when we talk about it and the fellowship and the support that is a part of it, one image kind of pops into our head, and that image is food. <laughs> food. And, and that's not a bad image in many respects. The image isn't all wrong. In fact, uh, this uh, last week on Wednesday, uh, our covenant group got together to kind of kick off the year. And let me tell you something, everything on that counter was absolutely delicious, right? And we just enjoyed an evening of eating together and catching up and fellowshipping, and it was a great time together. Uh, some groups, they meet on Friday night, and they do so so that they can have a meal together and they can have an extended time because they don't have to worry about school or work the next day. And that's a part of their body life. Uh, we have a woman's group that uh, every uh, uh, time, every morning after a group is done, they go out to lunch together and they invite other ladies from the other groups that happen to be meeting on that day to join them for lunch. And so, yes, food and biblical community definitely go together. I like to think that we're just staying true to the model that we see in Acts chapter 2, where the first biblical community under, under Christ was formed, and they gathered in homes, and they broke bread together as they studied the word and they prayed. So food and community, 
That's a good thing. Kind of goes together like salt and pepper, french fries and ketchup. Okay, they belong. But that's not all community is. Biblical community is much more than just eating together. Uh, Biblical community, just to remind you, last week we defined it. Uh, Biblical community is us being the uh, Jesus to one another, us embodying Christ to one another. It's us expressing the life of Christ and the message of Christ for the benefit of one another or for the benefit of those who do not yet know Christ, and we do so for his glory and not our own. That's biblical community. And so it's a lot more than just food. So over this past year, just thinking of a few examples um, uh, one, near the end of the school year, uh, one of our groups got together and they wrote almost a hundred cards, uh, thank you cards, filled with words of encouragement and appreciation, which were then distributed to all the staff and the teachers here at Lockmar Elementary, just thanking them. And, it, and we got messages back how much that meant at the end of a hard school year to many of these teachers. Other groups have come here to the school or they have joined with other ministries in the community to tangibly embody the love and the message of Christ by serving and coming alongside, helping those who do not yet know Christ but need to know Christ. For at least five of our groups this past year, uh, they walked uh, with other group members and supported them as they went through the valley of the shadow of death. For some of them, it was group members themselves who were sick and who passed away. For others, it was group members who were walking with a a spouse or with a close loved one. And so uh, community is much more than just food. It includes it, but it's so much more. As we saw last week, community is important for us because we are hardwired for it. We've been created in the image of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so we have a deep craving for community. We need it in some way that is often hard to define. We looked at that passage last week in the Old Testament, the opening pages of Genesis, where we saw this creation that God did in us being created in his image. But this week, we're going to go to the New Testament. And we're in John chapter 17, where Jesus is praying over the apostles. And in the presence of these men, Jesus reveals that his deepest desire for them and for us is that we live in biblical community with one another. And in this prayer, which is one of the, as as, uh, uh, Sandy mentioned, one of the most beautiful portions, I think, of the Gospels, he lays out the case why we should be involved in biblical community. So let's begin in verse 9 and look at the priority of of, of community. That the setting for this prayer is the upper room. So just to remind everyone of what's taken place is this is Good Friday, what we would call Good Friday. They've gathered together in the upper room. They've observed the Passover meal. Um, Judas Iscariot has left. He's going to go betray Jesus now. And the apostles were not necessarily on their best behavior this night. There was still the typical bickering and the jockeying for position and the just the sinfulness that is manifested probably in all of us in one way or another. Uh, Earlier in John chapter 14, uh, John 13, Jesus reveals that he is going to die. And in John chapter 14, 
There are those wonderful words of comfort where he says, though not let your heart be troubled, you believe in God, believe also in me. I go to prepare a place for you that where I am, there you will be also. Wonderful words of comfort in John 14. John 15 are those words where he encourages them. He says, I am the vine and you're the branches. Abide in me so that you can bear much fruit. And then in John 16, we have this promise where the Holy Spirit is going to be sent to indwell the believer, to be our teacher, to be our guide and our protector. Then John 17. And John 17, verse 1, we didn't read it, but Jesus begins to pray over these 11 apostles, his closest disciples, and he begins to pray for them. This is called the high priestly prayer of Jesus. And it's interesting as we consider it, maybe first to think about what is not included in this prayer. So as important it is, in verse 11, when he asks the Father to protect the apostles, he doesn't ask to protect them so that they can um, you know, spread the gospel around the world. He doesn't ask to protect them so that they could serve him with comfort, free from the fear of persecution. He doesn't pray to protect them so that they can ultimately have you know, lives of, that are wealthy and very healthy and comfortable. He doesn't pray that they can live their version of the American dream. That's not what he prays at all. Instead, he prays for all of his disciples, and he prays for all of his followers through the ages that they would be one with each other in the same manner that Jesus is one with the Father and the Holy Spirit. Let's don't miss the significance. What I think is one of the most significant things in this passage for us in the 21st century. Don't miss this. He specifically prays for you and for me to live in biblical community in oneness with one another. In verse nine, he says, I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them, and I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, keep them, or that word keep means to protect them, sustain them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. Now, in those verses, some have interpret, will interpret that and say, well, look, what he's praying for here is for the apostles themselves. I mean, they're bickering. There's not always these events where there's no unity and there's disunity. And so what he's really doing here is just praying for the apostles. That doesn't really you know, make much sense for you and me. But then when you go to verse 20, Jesus specifically says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Who are the people who believe in Jesus through their word? You and me, that's us. And so everything that he prays for these apostles, he's also praying for you and me and everyone who comes after them who trusts in Jesus. Christian oneness is so important that in verses 14 and 15, he beseeches the Father to protect us from Satan so that his desires will come true. Think about the implications of that right there. The need for protection from Satan in the area of biblical community in one respect is a, maybe a negative example of why it is so important. Biblical community is so important 
And this, this aspect of his prayer should be a warning to us. The forces of evil itself will affect us and attack us in this area, trying to tempt us away from authentic biblical community, working to throw obstacles in our path in order to, to isolate us and disengage us from biblical community. So his request here, Jesus' request to the Father on our behalf establishes that biblical community is of the highest priority. But the question is why? Why is biblical community so important? Why is it so important that Satan and the forces of evil itself will attack us in order to keep us out of biblical community? What is it that causes this kind of response? Why is it that Jesus would pray for this in this most intimate moment, in the last hours that he would have with the apostles before he goes to the cross. Well, I would contend it's the power of community that is, you know, uh, deserves this level of priority. As we saw last week, we're created for community. We're designed for it. And so it makes sense that at different places, Jesus would emphasize it as he does right here in this passage. But as to why it's important, this week's takeaway truth, I think, helps us to understand what's going on here. The Holy Spirit leverages the power of biblical community to transform us into mature followers of Jesus. And in this passage, we see, I think, at least four ways that the Holy Spirit leverages the power of biblical community, this environment where we come together And he leverages it so that we can become more mature followers of Jesus Christ. In verse 16, we see that it solidifies our identity as sons and daughters of God. Verse 16, they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Verse 21, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us. Do you catch what Jesus is saying there? What he's referring to is something that many of us have experienced. Everyone who's trusted in Christ has experienced. We have been united with Christ. We are in Christ, two of the most important words in the New Testament. If you have turned from sin and confessed your need for a Savior and have committed your life to Jesus as Lord, then you are in Christ. You are united to Christ. And since you, we are in Christ, that means we have been joined with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in a form of spiritual oneness. We have this new identity. We're not the old creation. We are a new creation. But here's the thing. Coming to the point where we understand what it means to be united to Christ, to have our identity rooted in Christ, This is a lifelong process. Uh, uh, Understanding who we are and how the gospel applies into every little corner of our lives, into all the daily actions of our lives, this doesn't happen overnight. How do we grow to a place where that reality that we are the sons and daughters of God becomes such a dominant understanding in our hearts and minds that it affects our decisions, it affects how we live our lives, how we serve our Lord, whether we say yes or no to temptation, how we raise our children, all the areas of life. How do you get to that point where it becomes that real? This is the work of the Holy Spirit in us. And the Holy Spirit 
is transforming us from glory to glory so that more and more we will be, take on the mind of Christ and live as Christ. This happens gradually, and it does not happen in isolation. Biblical community nurtures us as this gradual understanding and uh, application of the gospel takes place. And when life events occur that maybe shake us to the, the core of our being and create doubt, it's our group members who come around us and they help us regain our equilibrium. They remind us of who we are in Jesus Christ. So the Holy Spirit leverages biblical community so that we become more and more aware of who we are in Christ. He also uses it to encourage us to live sanctified, holy lives. Verse 17 says, sanctify them in the truth. That word sanctify is, is a word that gives you the image of the lamb uh, who was going to be sacrificed, let's say, for Passover. He's been consecrated to God. He's going to be laid upon the altar, and he's going to be butchered and sacrificed for the day of atonement. And this is what Jesus is saying, sanctify them in the truth, set them apart, use them for your service so that they will be holy and bring glory to you. Sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth. In biblical community, we come together as brothers and sisters in Christ and we hear from God together as we study his word. And we take it and we read it and we discuss it and we study it and we see how it applies and, and how it works into our lives. And we hear how God is using the scriptures in our lives. And over time, this word takes root in our hearts. And the Holy Spirit uses that learned, discussed word in our moment of need. As more and more we begin to think with the mind of Christ and biblical community we are encouraged in our fight against our fallen nature and the, the vestiges that remain even after salvation. With these, these vestiges of our fallen nature, they resist this new identity that we have in Christ. They encourage us to return to who we are, so it's in this, or who we were. So it's in the safety of biblical community where these sin struggles, we can confess them to one another and we don't have to worry about condemnation from one another because we are all sinners relying upon the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And instead of condemnation, we can hear the words that we need that will encourage us to press on, to say no to ungodliness, yes to the holiness of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's in biblical community where we can experience graceful accountability as we are honest and transparent with one another with where we're struggling. Thirdly, the Holy Spirit leverages the power of biblical community to join us to the mission of Christ. Verse 18 says, as you sent me into the world, so I've sent them into the world. Verse 21, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. It's in biblical community where many of us experience the most profound joy of Christ working through us for the benefit of other people. He works through us, for example, and most obviously, as I mentioned earlier, to, 
to benefit our other brothers and sisters who are in community with us. Uh, when we mentioned last week one of our values in our church is uh, caring genuinely. This is how we as a church and how the elders of our church have organized ourselves. If, if you want support and help and assistance in life as you face whatever may come your way, you need to be in a discipleship group. This is the front line of care in our church. When you opt out of discipleship groups, you are opting out of care. This is how we do it. This is how we deliver it. And, and it works. It is so much better to have five or six or ten brothers and sisters in Christ who have walked with you from the beginning, perhaps, of that trial that you are facing, who understand everything that you have been going through, who have been supporting you all along the way and all the way to the very end, where, however it resolves itself, then, frankly, to have the, the senior pastor pop by when you're at the hospital and pray with you and then, and then leave. So much better to have your brothers and sisters, who, by the way, whose prayers are just as effective, maybe more so, depending on the day, than the senior pastor. <laughs> right? And that's what biblical community delivers for us as we serve one another. But he also works through biblical community to meet the needs of those who don't know Jesus. And we have testimonies within our... We, in fact, uh, Andrea shared with us last week how her husband, Mark, sitting next to him, came to Christ through a small group in our church where those men brought him in, even though he was not a believer, had all of the baggage of an unbeliever, all the baggage that he still has that Andrew is working on, right? <laughs> Sorry. And it was through the, the love and the biblical community that he experienced that turned his heart, that the Holy Spirit used it to turn his heart towards Jesus. And we have other stories like that in our, in our church. I'm looking at another person right now, and I'm not going to say his name because I don't want to embarrass him, but I remember the day when his buddy calls me and says, hey, I think mm, has trusted in Christ. This morning when we were going around the table to pray, normally he wouldn't pray, no, and this morning he said, hey, what about me? I want to pray. And he came to Christ within the context of that biblical community. You know, Authentic biblical community, when you think about it, church, it, it certainly has an upward perspective. And we've talked about that, reading the word together, studying the word together, praying with one another. These are, these are upward focuses that must be in our discipleship groups in a balanced way if we're going to have biblical community. And I, and I think most of us all understand the inward focus because we like food <laughs> and we like fellowship, but we also grow to love one another and so we want to care for each other. And so we get the inward. And as a church, the upward and the inward focuses, I think, have just been help, help, happening in a healthy manner for many, many years now. But what about the outward focus? This is the area that I want to exhort and challenge all of us who are in biblical community here at Covenant this year to make a point of balancing out that focus with the upward and the inward. How can we serve the people in our community who need mercy? How can we help the people in our community who have been beaten down by their own sin or by the sin of others and have been, uh, have been abused and taken advantage of? How can we embody Jesus to them? How can we bring the life 
and the message of Christ to them for Jesus' glory and for their good. And so for all of you who are in a group, if you hear nothing else this morning, I hope that you hear this, that you challenge one another and group leaders, you talk about this. How will we look outward this year so that Jesus is brought to those who are in need in our broken world? Hey, there's a fourth thing that the Holy Spirit does. It's in verse 26, and I think I botched it this morning. I was supposed to replace the scripture reading so that uh, Sandy read verse 26 because I expanded it afterwards. And that is this. The Holy Spirit, he leverages biblical community so that each of us can tangibly and practically experience the love of God. Verse 26 says, I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. As so many of you have already experienced, you have developed your deepest relationships, human relationships, within the context of biblical community. You know, I've used that phrase this morning, brothers and sisters in Christ, a few times. You know, it's easy for us as Christians, we, we develop our own jargon, our own insider language. But can I suggest to you that that's not just Christian jargon. When we refer to each other as brothers and sisters in Christ, for those of us who have experienced the power of biblical community and the Holy Spirit working in our lives in that way, those words are real to us. They are real. And in fact, for many people, the sad reality is, is that we are closer to our extended spiritual family than we are to our extended physical family. That, that we love our brothers and sisters in Christ sometimes more than we love our natural brothers and sisters. Because some of us, we have natural brothers and sisters that are real stinkers and they're not very lovable. So this is reality for us. So finding people who accept you as you are, but they don't let you just stay there. They encourage you, and they support you, and they exhort you to cooperate with the Holy Spirit as he's doing his work of transformation in you. Who they love you, and you know they love you, because they are not afraid to gently call you to Christ when you're straying. And you know, that act, that's hard, isn't it? And that's how you know somebody loves you. When somebody tells you something that you need to hear, but you don't want to hear it, that is somebody who truly loves you. And that's what you have in biblical community. Community is the best context for the Holy Spirit to grow us up so that the mind of Christ progressively becomes our mind, so that the character of Christ more and more becomes our character, so that the life of Christ becomes our life. And so when you think about this passage and its importance, there's actually a, maybe an implicit warning here, an understanding this is why the enemy wants you to disengage 
from biblical community. This is why the enemy does not want you connected at this level. Because if this is the context where the mind and the character and the life of Christ is beginning to flourish in you, that is the exact opposite of what your enemy wants for your life and for your home and family. And so he's going to attack it. He wants to discourage you from it. For when you will isolate yourself from the body in corporate worship, when you isolate yourself from the body in discipleship, you are weakening yourself and you are making yourself vulnerable and you're putting a target on your back. Never forget that video that many years ago Brian Lumshu Chan showed us. Some of you remember it. You know, there's this herd of gazelles, and they're walking around. And, of course, lying in wait were the lions. How many of y'all remember that? You remember that? And there's the one gazelle. He goes away from the group. And what happens? He's toast. And the, and the message of that video was, don't be that gazelle. Don't be that lone ranger. Lone ranger Christians get butchered. Sooner or later, you experience that pain. It's a mystery how this happens. I don't completely understand it. It's a mystery how the Holy Spirit leverages the power of biblical community to transform us into mature followers of Jesus Christ. Um, you know, some of us, we don't like mysteries in a good way. Some of us are wired to be driven nuts by mysteries and paradoxes, things that, you know, haven't been resolved and haven't been figured out. You know, we, some of us, there's many of you in this room, I know because of your profession, at the core of your profession is figuring out problems and solving them. You're problem solvers. That's what you are. And so not understanding something can be a real, you know, just sticks in your craw. Uh, I, I, we experienced this Recently, a couple of elders and a couple of deacons over the past year helped uh, Catherine and MJ with his micro businesses, and and we had we were stuck with different things. And a couple of our elders and a couple of our deacons, all of whom, by the way, have engineering or those types of qualities, uh, you know, as Catherine would talk, and they start hmm, and you could see the wheels turning, right? And they begin to work on it, and they experimented, and they tried different things, and finally, they solved them. Why? Because they are wired, you know, unsolved problems, mysteries, paradoxes, uh-uh. No, we're going to figure this out. And, and I got to tell you, I, I don't have that in the physical world because I break everything I touch. But in the, I'm that way in the mental, in the spiritual world, especially when I was a younger believer. I wanted logical, rational answers to all of my questions about my faith. And so what happened over time is that my faith and my Christian experience was very cerebral, very academic, very scholastic-oriented, and it was very tidy. I mean, listen, I wanted to understand the New Testament so well. I took three years of Greek. I only had to take one. I took three. I wanted to know it. I wanted to be able to get my questions answered. What is this word? What's our game? And and so there was a point in my life, you know, I had, you know, if you came to me with this objection or that objection, I had a tidy, neat little answer bloop, to spit out to you. And I liked that. Everything was in its place. And certainly, by the way, there is a place for the academic, for the scholarly, 
Uh, Christianity is not supposed to be an irrational faith. We don't check our minds at the doors. In fact, we're supposed to engage the word with both our hearts and our minds. So there is a place, obviously, for that emphasis. But I've noticed something in my own spiritual journey over the years. The Holy Spirit's changed me. And he's changed me so that I don't have to have it all tidied up with a bow around it. I've actually come to the point where I delight in the unfathomable. I enjoy the mysteries and the paradoxes of the gospel. I've come to realize that mystery and paradox are at the heart of the gospel. Mystery and paradox is at the heart of God's word and and his revelation to us. And, And shouldn't it be that way? I love the fact that God is so much bigger than my attempts to put him in a tidy little box with all the answers and that he delights in blowing them up. And the same thing is true here in in this subject of community. There are just things in the gospel that we cannot get our heads around. We will not figure it out. And the same thing is true about community. You know, we've looked at the priority and power. I want us to close out in the last few minutes with the paradox of community. I would suggest there's two paradoxes as it relates to community in this passage. First of all, there's the paradox of provision. Verse 19 says, And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. And you know what Jesus is saying there? You know, in order for them to be holy, set apart for you, I now, Father, put myself on the altar like the consecrated lamb. I now put myself in their place to be butchered, to have my blood shed so that they can be made one with us, heavenly Father. What a paradox. What a paradox that Christ's oneness with the Father had to be shattered. It had to be broken so that we could become one with him and experience oneness in biblical community. For those of you who have not yet experienced that oneness, the hope of the gospel is extended to you this morning. If you will understand and recognize that you're a sinner, that you need to have your sins forgiven, that you cannot earn this, but that Jesus' sacrifice pays the penalty of your sins, that your sins are covered under his blood, and you turn to him, rejecting yourself, and you embrace him as Lord and Savior, you can be united to him and enjoy the oneness that comes only through Jesus. And those words of comfort that he gave to those apostles in John chapter 14 when he said, I go to prepare that place for you so that you can be with me, the apostle says, we don't know how to get there. And Jesus answered them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. For oneness with your creator, you must turn to your creator who took on flesh. And the paradox of the gospel died for you, having his oneness broken when he shouted those words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There's the paradox of provision, and then there's the paradox of presence. Listen to the, the mystery in these verses, the paradox in these verses, the glory Verse 22, that you have given me, I've given to them. Verse 23, I and them and you and me, 
that they may become perfectly one. Verse 26, I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Wow. How is, how is Jesus at the same time one in the Father and in us? How are we even one with one another? I can't explain that. That's the paradox of the gospel and of biblical community. He is in us in one sense in the Holy Spirit. He sent the Holy Spirit to indwell us, but he's also in us and with us when two or three gather together in his name. There I am in the midst of them. We, we, we sang earlier and we professed and confessed earlier that he's at the right hand of the throne of God, interceding on our behalf, ministering for us, and yet at the same time as we take this meal together, his presence is here. How can he be at the right hand of God and yet here with us, sustaining us, feeding us, nurturing us, uh, empowering us through this bread and through this fruit, uh, juice? How does he do that? I don't know. <laughs> that's, the, that's the paradox of his presence, that he is with us right now in this room. And as we take this sacred meal, he is doing a work of grace in our lives to feed and strengthen and empower us. This is more than a memorial. It is a memorial, but this is an active means of grace where Jesus uses this sacrament to strengthen us. He is ministering to us right now in this meal. Paradox. As I've become older in Christ, I've come to love these paradoxes. And if you are in Christ this morning, you are welcome to take this meal with us. You don't have to be a member of our church, but if you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior and you're a member of a church and that church has not prohibited you from taking the Lord's Supper, then you are welcome to take it with us. Parents, as a reminder, we ask that if your children have, are with you, your young ones, they have not yet professed Christ and been examined by the elders, that you hold them back from taking this meal. You know, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 gave us these words. He says, I gave to you what I received also from the Lord, that on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread, and after giving thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then after supper, he took the cup. And he said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. For as often as we eat the bread and drink the cup, we do proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You know, this is a sacred meal. And just like a physical meal... We clean up and wash up before eating. We need to do the same before this sacred meal. And so let's take a few moments. The scriptures tell us that we're not to take this meal in an unworthy manner. Let me encourage you to bow your heads, to close your eyes, to spend some time with the Lord alone in quiet prayer. Ask the Holy Spirit to reveal any sin that may be in your life, 
confess it to him this morning. And as this is taking place, I want to invite the elders and the worship team to take their place, please.